0: Lord, to remember that you are worth it all. The things of this world grow strangely dim when we start considering who you are and what you've done. So thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for your word to us. Thank you for being our savior. And Lord, it's with a heavy heart we consider the state of Texas uh, as the hurricane is is slamming into the coast. Uh, Pictures from Houston have been alarming with the flooding and uh, Lord, It's just amazing that so far, there's only one reported death. Um, It's tragic, we would hope for none, but Lord, in in earlier times, if that hurricane had hit, death would would be in the thousands. Thank you for your mercy to us, that you have given us the technology to predict a weather pattern like that, to prepare to to, um, meet it and to uh, resist it, to flee its path if necessary. Lord, that made me think of when you were in the boat with your disciples, And they're concerned that they're drowning. And in in Matthew, it says, then he, that's you, arose and rebuked the wind and the sea, and there was a great calm. Lord, you are sovereign over these storms, and you can squash them in a moment or let them rage. We're not sure why you have chosen to send this one into Texas, but Lord, because you could have stopped it, we know that there is purpose. And so, Lord, we pray that um, as the, the storm is causing problems in Texas. Lord, we pray for your church there that she would respond well to the needs of others. Lord, that she would help where help is needed. And Lord, we pray for the emergency workers who are working so hard to, um, to relieve the stress, relieve the, the troubles that are happening. Lord, would you be with them, guide them, and guard them carefully. And Lord, we thank you that you have given us the grace of uh, a government that will step in and, and help in these things. So, Lord, we pray for everyone in Texas who's affected by this storm, Lord, that through this, you would help many of them to see that there is one who stands above the storm and can calm it. Um, Lord, be glorified even in a storm that rages. And Father, I pray now that you would send your Holy Spirit to be with us as we read this text, as we understand um, what is going on with the betrayal of Jesus. Help us to see it, to understand it, and to glorify Jesus in all of it. We ask all of this in his name, amen. So once again, we're in the final days before the crucifixion. And the illustration that I've been using is these dominoes falling one at a time. And I said the first domino that went down was the Lord's Supper. And he initiated it, he started it, it was his idea. The second domino we looked at last week, which was, um, now I'm drawing a blank, what did I do last week? Was anybody else here last week? it was uh, jesus in the garden of gethsemane and if you remember last week which i just didn't but if you remember last week what happened in the garden of gethsemane was i said that jesus had put himself in judas's crosshairs he knew what judas's point was he knew what his purpose was and he could have fled anywhere but instead he continued as was his custom to go to the garden um, so that was that next domino that fell Is jesus is in control he started the last supper he's in control he went to Gethsemane, and now we're seeing Judas show up and the betrayal of Jesus, and it's less obvious, but Jesus is still in control. He's still um, achieving his purposes here, though evil opposes him. Um, what we're going to see in this betrayal, though, is we're going to see the nature and the end of betrayal. And end has a double meaning end has the meaning of purpose, but it also means terminus, end cuts off. So, in that, we're going to look at the intimacy of betrayal, the ugliness of betrayal, and the source of betrayal. And and that's all in what Judas is doing here. So the, um, the intimacy of betrayal. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man named Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. So Jesus has just finished praying, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but your will be done. And he turns to his disciples, and he says, rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. So he's still speaking that to them, and the crowd comes. And in comes the crowd. There's, there's people with um, clubs and, and spears, and, and they're ready to arrest him. And he's led by Judas. And it's not just Judas. Luke says, one of the 12. And so he draws near to Jesus to kiss him. And Jesus, Jesus says to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Why a kiss? Couldn't Judas have just stood on the other side of the garden and go, yep, that's him, that one? Um, Or why did they need Judas to lead him, to point him out? Jesus himself will say, look, I was in the temple teaching, and you guys didn't touch me. Why are you coming against me now? So doesn't that seem odd that Judas would show up, have to point him out, and then have to do it with a kiss? Um, What I think is going on is don't forget what time of day this is. This is late at night. It's very dark. They didn't have streetlights or flashlights. It's very dark in this, in this garden at this time. So Judas would have to draw near to Jesus to be able to see, yeah, that's really him. I'm not grabbing Peter. So as he's drawing near, he could say, well, I have to have a reason to draw near. And a traditional way to greet a rabbi is with a kiss. So I'll just draw near, make sure it's Jesus, and then they'll see that I kiss him. And that, then they'll know, this is the one you grab. And they could be standing there with torches. Torches don't throw much light. So that's probably what's going on. It's probably why he had to betray him with a kiss, is so he could identify him clearly in the dark and then show to the, the others what was going on. I don't think that's the fullness of it, though. That's, that's very technical and very probable, but I don't think it pictures all of what's involved in Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss. He has to draw near. He has to come close because Luke has pointed out he was one of the 12, so you remember, Jesus had disciples following him, large crowds who came to hear him teach. He was their master. He, they wanted to hear what he had to say. And out of that large group of, of people, he called 12 to himself. 12 men, he said, come and be with me. And he, he traveled with them and he revealed to them what his parables meant and he taught them and he, he spent special time with them. So Judas is going with Jesus for three years. Walking along the roads, sleeping in the open fields and sharing houses. And, and he's one of these intimate 12 who is with Jesus. Jesus gave Judas authority over demons. He sent him out. Earlier, he sent him out and he said, you have authority to cast out demons. Now go to the tribes of Israel and preach the gospel. Judas was one of them. Judas was not excluded. So when we look at this and Judas coming up and and giving him a kiss on the cheek, it's not a formal thing. This is someone who he's formed a friendship with. This is a close friend of his. And Judas comes near to him and betrays him with a kiss. Betrayal is an intimate thing. If you have somebody who hates your guts and they spill the beans about something that you've done, is that betrayal? No, you wouldn't call that betrayal. They just, you know... They knocked me out on whatever it was. But if a close, intimate friend, if someone who's very near to you did the same thing, you would, say, you would feel even more deeply wounded and you would say, that's a betrayal. Because to betray, you have to be extremely close, extremely personal. And so what we see here with, with Jesus being betrayed in such an intimate, close fashion is, if you remember the, um, the birth narrative of Jesus, what I said at that time was, God draws near to us. God came repeatedly to Israel in different ways at different times. He he inhabited the temple. He spoke through the prophets. He led Israel through the wilderness as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And his desire was always to be with his people. When Jesus comes, this is God living not just with us, but in us. He comes right up with us. And he didn't hover above us. He didn't get born in in a palace someplace. He was born in a manger. He comes right down to our level. This is our God who draws this close. And it's a beautiful thing. A friend of mine a while ago went to Athens to uh, do some theological training with some churches, but also to work with the migrants, the the refugees who were coming into Athens. And I've quoted him before. He just recently quoted something that I thought was a beautiful picture of this intimacy that God has with us in Jesus Christ. Um, He spoke with a man who was once a Muslim and is now an atheist. And he asked this now atheist, he said, why is it do you think that Muslims are converting to Christianity? And this is what the man said. He said, if there is a common thread running through these conversions testimonies, it is that Christianity preaches the love of Christ and of God, whereas Islam is forever threatening hellfire for disobeying and obsessively holds up the wrath of God in front of the believer. In other words, the two religions have two totally different conceptions of God. In the former, God is near, loving, and protective, God the Father. In the latter, God is is a remote, angry, tyrannical figure who will be obeyed blindly. Now, I'm not here to bash on Islam, but do you see how this former Muslim, now atheist, describes Christianity? God is near. He draws close to you. Whereas in Islam, he's very distant. He's he's utterly transcendent. I recently heard a discussion between a a Christian apologist and a, um, a Muslim imam talking about monotheism, the one God. And the thing that the Muslim imam kept saying over and over again is, God is utterly transcendent. He is utterly other. He is so perfect and so holy and so complete. He needs no son. Why would he do something as small, as tiny, as have a son? And the Christian kept saying, God is one. He is transcendent, and yet he has drawn near in his son. So that's the difference. So when we look at this this betrayal, what Jesus does, he draws near not just in our humility as as being born as a, as a, a poor carpenter, he draws near even in our pain of betrayal, he isn't betrayed from a distance. He isn't betrayed by somebody putting up a wanted poster. His close, intimate friend draws near to him and betrays him. Jesus enters into our suffering. He enters into our pain in these things. So he draws near to his people, literally, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, even in betrayal. So there is, there's more to it than just it's dark and, and Judas has a job to do. It's this closeness that, that he draws near. Now, I promise, I said before that I wouldn't look at other Gospels uh, to flesh these stories out, but there's one thing I'm going to borrow from John. I'm going to violate my own hermeneutic on this, is John mentions a psalm, and he just mentions a portion of it, but I wanted to read a little bit bigger piece of it to show you this intimacy that's going on. This is Psalm 41, verses 8, 9, and 10. David writes, they say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O oh Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. I think in that little portion of that psalm, you get exactly what's going on. is His enemies are saying, where he's fallen, he's not getting up again. We're going to kill him and that's going to be it. And how do they get there? my friend who ate bread with me. Remember the last supper? Jesus said, the one who's going to betray me, his hand is on the table with me. He ate bread with me, and he raised his heel against me. But in the end, Jesus says, but you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. There's a judgment coming. So that's the picture of the betrayal. That's the intimacy. That's how close betrayal is, how how near it comes to us. And Jesus enters into that. He doesn't shy away from it. Hold on to that picture. We're going to apply it at the end. So now the ugliness of betrayal. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. So you'll remember when Jesus was saying, he, he gave his final discourse, he said, remember last time I told you don't take a money bag or any of that stuff? Well, do that, and if you don't have a sword, buy a sword. And at the time, I said, what he was saying was not go buy a sword, what he was saying is be ready for travel. And here's why, we, why I say this is not what, Jesus didn't tell him go out and buy a sword. They presented him a sword, or two swords, and he said, we got two, and he says, it is enough. And at the time, I said what he was saying was, OK, you guys aren't getting it. <laughs> it's not about the swords. So now what happens is when those who were with him saw what would follow. So Jesus understood his betrayal. He knew what his betrayal would, enta- would, would mean, where it was going to lead. His followers then look, and they see Judas come, kiss the rabbi, and the crowd there with the sl- swords and, and clubs. And they go, we know what comes next. What they're probably still assuming is Jesus is the Messiah. Tomorrow morning, probably, we're going to get up and we're going to walk into Jerusalem and he's going to sit on a golden throne and rule the nation. And we're going to argue about who gets to sit on his right side and his left side. And, And that's probably what they're still thinking. So when opposition comes to the Messiah, what's the obvious response? Military. So they say, Lord, should we strike with the sword now? Is it, you told us to bring a sword. We got it. Are we going to hack them up now? It's time to go at them. And then one of them, and we know who it is. Who is it? Peter. Or me. Or you. you know, We pick on Peter, but he really represents every man. He's all of us. Peter lashes out at the, the servant of the high priest. Was he trying to trim a little hair off the side of his head? It's dark. Peter missed. All he did was lop off an ear, but he was going for everything above the neck. He was ready to fight. Betrayal is such an ugly thing. When they see their presumed king being betrayed, they have a visceral, a a response that comes from deep within. We are going to fight this. This is wrong. And so Peter does what comes naturally. He just whacks at him with the sword. He's going to take this guy's head off. I'll hit the f- closest one I can get to because betrayal is so wrong. And, and we know it's wrong. It's, it shouldn't be like this. If I say to you, Benedict Arnold, what's the first thing pops in your mind? Traitor. Not patriot, traitor. Why is it 200 years later and the poor guy is still labeled as a traitor? Because he's a traitor, <laughs> because he betrayed his country. We don't take that very well. So that's what I mean about we would be in that same position that Peter was in. Betrayal is an ugly thing. And so what Jesus responds with is, put the sword away. Now is not the time. And he heals the man's ear. He sticks his ear back on. Um, Isn't it interesting? Luke, the surgeon, would note that he's the only one that notes that the ear goes back on. And he even notes it's the right ear. Everybody else who says he lopped off his ear. The surgeon is being precise and saying this is how it went back on. So here's where I think we get to a discipleship principle here. What happens when a dear friend or family member betrays Jesus? Someone who has been in the faith for a long time and then turns away. The danger is we're going for ears, There was a young man who spoke, he stood right here, I still remember when he was here, named Brandon. And he talked to us, he did a a conference on Jonathan Edwards' theology. It was right after Daniel got here. Um, And he eventually wrote a book with the professor at Trinity who was a Jonathan Edwards scholar. And so I friended him on social media and followed him for a while. And I noticed after a while his post became a little bit more critical of Christianity. And he was teaching in, I think it was a seminary, or at least a Christian college, and eventually he had to step down, because he didn't believe anymore. He stopped being a Christian. He didn't believe in God. And he has a lot of integrity, because it cost him dearly. He could continue to teach history not believing in God, but he felt, for integrity's sake, he should go to the college and say, look, I don't believe, I can't state your statement of faith, and so I feel I must leave. And so he did, and he, he's, he's moved on. And he's, he's an atheist. He writes a blog called The Curious Ape. Um, I'm still really good friends with him. My feeling when he left the faith was, I'm going for the head. <laughs> Where's my sword? I wanted to engage him and have a good apologetic debate about everything that was wrong with his. Th- Why did you do this? And instead, because God is very gracious to me, I throttled it back, and I'm still friends with him. So I still interact with him every once in a while on, on Facebook and Twitter, and, and when he goes over the line a little too critical of religion, I'll, I'll call him on it because I know he knows better. And when he says something positive, I'll engage with him. What I'm doing there is I'm trying to engage this betrayal the way Jesus would have us engage betrayal, which is, call it what it is, everywhere Judas is mentioned in the gospels, he is the one who would betray Jesus. There's, there's nowhere in, in the Gospels that ever speak of Judas as a really great guy, but what we can't do with those who betray Jesus is cut them off or try to cut them off or cut parts of them off. What we should do is let them know you have crossed a line and you're wrong and then continue to keep channels open if you can, possibly. Sometimes when they leave, they, they slam the door and they're really ugly and they don't ever want to talk to another believer again because it's all hogwash. But on your part, Christian, when you see somebody depart the faith, when you see somebody betray Jesus, you can keep the lines of communication open. You just have to make sure the the sword stays in the sheath. Otherwise, Jesus may have to go around sticking ears on after you're done. So try try to maintain that peace where you can. That's what the Bible tells us. As much as is possible for you, as much as the responsibility lies with you, be at peace with all men. Don't shy away from who you are and what you believe and who Jesus is, but don't be belligerent about it either. So pray for Brandon when you think about it. I, I, I keep praying that, Lord, would you open his eyes and make him remember some of those things and maybe come back? Um, that would cost him dearly again because now he's got this great following. He writes for Huffington Post. and you know, But his eternal soul is more important than his paycheck on a day-to-day basis. So this idea of betrayal, it, it's... In Jesus' case, it's extraordinarily intimate. And in the disciples' case, it's extremely ugly. And the response to it is, is pretty horrible. And so let's take a look now at the last section the source of betrayal. So after Jesus addresses his disciples and says, This is not how we're going to proceed, put the sword away. This is not where we're going, he then turns to the priests the officers of the temple and the elders who came out against him and he asked them have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs when i was in when i was with you day after day in the temple you did not lay a hand on me so what he's saying is look you guys is this a reasonable response that you would come out armed to the teeth against me am i am i one of the zealots who are out attacking rome and attacking the, the temple and or am I just a teacher? You saw me in the temple on a day-to-day basis. You saw me there. And you, this is appropriate response? He says, this, the fact that you've come out at night to get me should show you something's going on. He's calling them out on what they're trying to do. And so he, as he's calling them out, he says, look, I, you had shots at me constantly. I was in the temple regularly. If you wanted to arrest me, you could have done it in broad daylight in front of everybody but you're cowards, and so now he's gonna offer them the diagnosis of why they behave this way, and here's his diagnosis, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Why are they coming out to arrest him? Because this is their hour. Why are they doing it at night, under, under cloak of night? Because this is the power of darkness. So what you see, Jesus walking into. He hasn't submitted to anybody so far, has he? Never submitted to anybody, but now he comes to this point and he's submitting to his betrayal and his arrest. He's walking into it not as a, a um, some masochistic victim who's enjoying it. Remember how he prayed in the garden. But he's saying, "This is my Father's will." Why is he doing that? What's the point of it? Well, remember how we set up what, Ill, what uh, betrayal is. This is his intimate friend. These are close people to him who are turning against him. Look at the history of God's people throughout the Bible. Adam and Eve had sinless perfection in the Garden of Eden. They walked with God and what did they do? They took the shortcut. They turned away from him. They didn't want to follow him. Later on, when God would rescue the nation of Israel from Egypt, from slavery, and take them out into the wilderness, all they did was whine. We could go back to Egypt. We had had food there, at least. God graciously leads them out of Egypt, and they turn away from him. And then once God leads that next generation into the promised land and settles it through Joshua... Joshua, remember, at the end says, look, you decide today who you're going to follow. Our God won't be trifled with. And they all say, hey, we're with you. We're going to follow Yahweh. Until the next book, we get to Judges, and it's just this downward slope. God sends them Samuel Samuel, to call them back to repentance. He appoints David as their king. David establishes and secures the kingdom. His son Solomon reigns in his place and builds the temple, which God fills with his glory. It's an amazing thing. And then by the end of uh, Solomon's life, he's got 700 wives and worshiping a whole bunch of gods. And from there on, it's all downhill. Again, God's people turn constantly away from him. It is that betrayal over and over and over again. They keep turning away from him. And so when God brings them back to the land and they begin to establish themselves, the Old Testament ends. And in the New Testament, how does God behave now? More of the same much more of the same. He takes on humanity and walks among them. God, the second person of the Trinity, the eternally begotten son of God, is walking in their midst, teaching, healing, calling them to repentance. God finally is with his people. He dwells in the midst of them. And what do they do? He's got to die. We've got to kill him. Well, he can't be like this. That is the ultimate betrayal. For what they're doing right now, this is the ultimate betrayal. That's why it's their hour, but it's fueled by the power of darkness. It is that sin that led Adam and Eve to fall. It's that bitter root growing through history to this point where it still is present. It is still as ugly as it ever was. So here's the arresting question how do I know I won't do that? If my friend Brandon did, if we've seen other people, if Judas himself, who was empowered by Christ to cast out demons, if they turned away, how do I know I won't? If this is the pattern of humanity, how am I delivered from that? Because it is the power of darkness. The answer to that is to go back to the Last Supper. Do you remember what Jesus said when he he took the cup? He said, this is the cup, is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. What Jesus is promising them is, I'm instituting a new covenant. This is something different. And when we go back to Jeremiah 31, what we find there is this new covenant includes this statement they will know me from the least to the greatest of them. All of them will know me. You won't have to say to your neighbor, don't worship that idol, worship Yahweh. Everybody in this new covenant will know me from the least to the greatest. And the other promise we get from Ezekiel is I am going to put my spirit on all of them. The Holy Spirit will inhabit all of his people in this new covenant. And what Jeremiah again says is, He's going to write on their heart, not on tablets of stone, but on their heart, his law. He is going to bend them towards obedience. He is going to incline them to continue to follow him. That's because the Lord's Supper. That's because of Gethsemane. That's because of betrayal. That's because of the cross. That's because of the resurrection. So we're right in the middle of this stream, and Jesus is already showing this is what it's going to mean to be in the new covenant. The promise, when we get to the end of Luke, we're going to see the He's going to tell them, stay here until the promise of the Father is given to you. And then when you get to Acts, you find out what the promise of the Father is. Tongues of fire come and rest on them. Each one is filled with the Holy Spirit and comes out preaching the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit that is going to seal them. It's the Holy Spirit that's going to keep us from wandering away. As strong in our heart as betrayal may come at times, it's going to be the Holy Spirit that keeps you there. Here's some verses to remember this when you're struggling. Second Corinthians one twenty-one, and it is God who establishes us, establishes us with you in Christ, and He has anointed us, and who has put His seal on us and given us His Holy Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. You are given the Holy Spirit, not for fun and kicks, but as a guarantee. This is God saying, I promise you, my covenant is solid. I am sealing you with this promised Holy Spirit so that you will persevere until the end. My, my spirit promises that. He, he guarantees that. And then in Ephesians 1.13, Paul says, In him you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm in the middle of Ezekiel right now, and God just sent out an angel to go and seal the people who hadn't worshiped false gods. He wrote on their foreheads and sealed them. The seal is not a peel off tattoo. It is a spiritual indelible mark by an angel saying, this person is mine, this person is mine, this person is mine. So when you get to the New Testament and you think seal, you've got to think not as a wax thing you can peel off. It's a spiritual thing that has been stamped on you. This is the seal. My Holy Spirit is upon you. You are sealed as a guarantee until you inherit the promise at the end. And then in 430, he says again, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for their day of redemption. That's that idea. You can't peel that sticker off your head and say, I'm not one of his anymore. The best you can do is grieve the Holy Spirit as you're wrestling against this sealing, this uh, perseverance, as you wrestle with sometimes temptations to betray, temptations to deny. You need to remember, I have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. He is a guarantee of a tremendous promise that awaits the day of redemption. That's why when you look at this and you see this is their hour and the power of darkness, you have to remember salvation is not merely a mental process. It is not merely reciting I believe this, I believe this, I believe this. It is a spiritual endeavor. The Holy Spirit is heavily involved in this. And Jesus Christ through his accepting betrayal, he took the betrayal of his people one last time to himself, so intimately that it would cost him his life so that he could break the power of it. He could destroy it because in accepting that betrayal, he's arrested, he's turned over to the Gentiles, he's crucified, he bears the burden of our sins on the cross and is buried, and then he's risen again. And In his resurrection, he sends his Holy Spirit upon his people to seal them for that day. This is the end of covenant betrayal. It's over. Christ has won. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit as a promise until the day of redemption. When you get to see everything that he said to you. So in in Christ drawing close to us, as as he draws near to us in the incarnation, he also draws near to us in our sin. He accepts the burden of betrayal so that he can break it. He embraced his betrayal for his people in order to end it in them. That's the power of the new covenant. That is the new covenant in Christ's blood for us. So this is the power of betrayal. When we look at this, we don't look at this and say, oh, Jesus is a poor victim here. Judas betrayed him. What we see is Jesus marching into this and saying, I'm going into the jaws of the lion so that I can break them. I'm going to pull the teeth of this beast so that my people may not be tortured by it again. That's what, that's what I mean by the end of betrayal. Its purpose was to lead Jesus to this point so that it could be ended. And he accepts that fully. He brings that on himself by putting himself in Judas's crosshairs because he needed to end betrayal so that the new covenant cannot be broken. It is his promise to us. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your mercy to us. We are absolutely no better than Adam, than Solomon, than any king of Israel or any king of Judah. We're no better than the Pharisees. Lord, we're all made out of dirt. Lord, we've all been stained and broken by sin's sins. sin-stained by Adam's fall, it has crippled all of us spiritually. And so, Lord, we thank you that you have taken to yourself the burden of betrayal so that you could end it. And, Lord, I pray for all of us. Lord, I, I, we, I wish we could see, I wish we could get up in the morning and see the stamp on our forehead that says we are sealed with the Holy Spirit to remind us again and again we are yours But, Lord, instead of looking in a mirror, we have to look at our lives and see what you've done, how your promises have held true over and over again. And so, Lord, would you remind all of us individually, you know all of us intimately, would you remind each one of us this week of how it is that you have preserved us, how you have turned us in a right direction when our heart wanted to go the wrong way, Lord, how you've redeemed our thoughts when they've turned pretty dark. And Lord, Holy Spirit, thank you for sealing us. We pray that we wouldn't grieve you. Lord, that we would be in harmony with you as we walk toward the day of redemption, as we get to see the promise fulfilled. Lord, we, f- we ask your forgiveness for grieving you, and we pray that you would continue your work in us to incline our hearts towards obedience. And Lord, again, thank you for the new covenant, the covenant in your blood not in our works. Lord, help us to remember it when our flesh and our world around us denies it. Help us to remember that it's a covenant in your blood. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.